This is episode 64 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Welcome to episode 64 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today, I have a two-part episode. The first part is my interview with Mac Cunningham, who is an investor out of the Ottawa area. Mac is established in multifamily buildings. He's only been at it just a few years, but he's taken the approach of using joint venture partnerships in a really creative way. Uh, normally, we're seeing joint venture partnerships with one money partner and one working partner, but Mac has basically used the opportunity of joint venture partnerships to buy into a building that the owner already owned and just didn't want to deal with anymore in exchange for mentorship and, of course, a piece of the pie. Uh, it was good to talk with Mac, good to get a perspective from somebody in the Ottawa area. I'm using this lockdown that we're in to open and spread out my uh, my focus of guests and uh, try to get a few more people from across Canada. And uh, so far, it's been really nice. It's been a really great opportunity. So, of course, always trying to look for silver linings where I can. So the second part of the episode after my interview with Mac is a little talk on economics. I've had a few people ask me and also a friend of mine encouraged me that I should talk to you a little bit about my perspective with economics, where I see things going. Of course, none of this is advice. It's just what I think and uh, hopefully give you some perspective as to where we might see things go over the next six months, over the next year, two years uh, with our economy, with our market. So I'm just going to go into some of the basics of human psychology uh, and how that intertwines with economics and what we might expect to see. Again, just totally opinion-based, but I feel that it may be helpful and I thought I might as well share. So that's going to fall at the end of this episode. So stay tuned right after the interview. And as always, I just wanted to ask you to please take a moment and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, on iTunes, or wherever it is that you're listening. Uh, If you're watching on YouTube, please give it a thumbs up. Um, Please share it with somebody that you think it could help because it's going to help this podcast grow, reach more people, and hopefully help them too. So with that said, let's jump into the episode with Mac Cunningham. Hello and welcome to the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. I have Mac Cunningham on the call here. Mac, thanks for uh, for taking the time. Hey, I really really appreciate you uh, having me on the show there, Andrew. Yeah, well, it's uh, we've been texting for a while. It's been... Uh, you know, probably about a year uh, here and there, we we kind of connect on Instagram. And I know we were planning on getting you down this way to do an in-person, but given the current situation, I thought a perfect opportunity to uh, to just do it this way. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, you're out of the Ottawa area, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm investing in Ottawa here. Uh, I've been investing for three years. Um, I started with, uh, I bought a townhome. Um, and then uh, I renovated that one. I buried that one. Uh, I've been living in it. Uh, and then I have a couple, I have 10 units uh, as well. So I have a fourplex and a sixplex that I'm partnered on. Um, I also did a flip uh, that just closed early this year. So, uh, you know, I've done a couple things. You know, last year was definitely a busier than this year. Mind you, you know, we're only four months, four months deep. And I think everyone's keeping busy now uh, with everything going on. So, you know, it's kind of, it's been good. Uh, lots of, lots of lessons, a lot of, sweat equity too. So yeah. Are you, are you the guy that does the work? Like how, tell me a little bit about your, your model. Like you've got a couple of bigger buildings there. So a four and a six plex. Um, those are burrs as well. Uh, yes and no. So, uh, kind of an interesting, uh, interesting approach to those ones. Um, the fourplex. So I, I have a, a couple partners. Um, I am a working partner. Yes. However, it's kind of like split tasks. Like we all, we kind of took a year to really develop a partnership, um, which was definitely one of the, the things I would tell anyone to do is get to know your partners. Took a year to develop a partnership, and then what ended up happening was uh, myself and another one of my partners. We um, bought into the fourplex, which was my other two partners. Uh, building and uh, we bought in to refinance it, to remortgage it, to buy the six plaques, to pull the, the money to to uh, essentially close and you have the down payment ready for the six plaques. So, okay, so same partners on both. Yeah, for those two, yeah, and uh, it's been uh, it's been interesting so far. There's definitely been uh, you know some creative things that have come along the way. Definitely been interesting times. You know, we're in the in the process of doing a couple. We just closed the redoing the mortgage on the the fourplex once again. So that was uh, happy to do that. 
<laughs> so, and what was the driver of value? So you're, you mentioned you're, re, you're refinancing it. What did you do to the building to add value to it that, that allowed you to get more money? Uh, from a rental point of view, I think your, your best, uh, your best value adds, I, I mean, we're, I'm targeting specifically a neighborhood called Vanier, which depending if you talk to someone from Ottawa, you might get a different reaction, whoever you talk to. It's got a bit of a stigma in the history. Um, you know, it's changed. However, the nice thing about Vanier is uh, it's where this building is, is about two or three blocks from Rockliff, which is the most expensive neighborhood in Ottawa. So you have this street called Beechwood, and it is super close. On one side of the street, the property value is almost double. So it's only a matter of time, I think, till development changes and this property, uh, you know, it kind of comes south towards Vanier. Um, so my whole entire por- portfolio is invested in Vanier right now. Um, more of a long-term strategy. So back to answer your question there, Andrew, we're restabilizing these buildings right now. This building was already sort of in stabilization. Um, however, last we took over, we kind of had a, an agreement uh, internally that we were going to buy in, um, you know, kind of last December. And by the time, you know, we have three lawyers involved, right, uh, to get it all ironed out, it ended up being closer to the end of February, early March. But we, we'd had an agreement in place. And so we had a turnover back in December of 2018. And we were able to, you know, go in and we painted it all. You know, the unit the was, was previous, there was a smoker. So you do your TSPs on the TSP on the wall, cleaned it all up. Um, I, I find that uh, just changing like, hardware on the existing kitchen to a satin nickel finish and then you know one bedroom needed flooring i mean i could have done the whole unit but you know we're kind of in this more for the long term so i think there's steps to uh the upgrades right there's a certain uh, uh try and get your money back within a year or two from your increase from what you're spending right so so I you're just tidying uh, them up then just tidying, tidying up the them up and then uh, you know bringing the rent up to market and then you know as I as things go along, you know, maybe four or five years from now, the rental market here is very, very hot. Now, right now, it's obviously interesting times, so who knows? But I know that you do more of like a full gut, and you would go and uh, put in the high end kitchen, right, and make it look a little more, you know, top top of the line. I think Vanier will be there. I think Vanier will be there in five to ten years, right? So. I, I, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm tidying them up and then five to 10 years from now, I'll reevaluate where I think uh, if I can boost rents again type thing. Right. So, okay. So, so your initial, so it started with this four plaques with your partners, you went in, you tidied up one unit or two units, or did you get all four to the, get the tenants to leave and, and, and uh, redo? No, so uh, actually I still have three of the original tenants that he mm-hmm. had. He, I guess, had a problem tenant uh, back before we were partners, right? And uh, he had dealt with that. Um, he had uh, done some interesting things to actually acquire the building. And then uh, we did a one-year term uh, with the mortgage. And then a year later, we were able to, uh, we did another appraisal. And just, we paint, We ended up painting uh, three, of, we redid one unit pretty well, you know, paint your your fixture, your small fixtures, a couple little things, uh, like just cleaned up the washroom and, you know, like your simple stuff, like recocking uh, the cabinets yeah. and uh, stuff like that. And then we had the other two units, we actually had one of the tenants volunteered to paint them both. So we supplied mm-hmm. the paint and uh, he painted them all. We ended up paying him uh, you know, paying him because we didn't want to take advantage, right? So, and we came to a win-win agreement and everyone everyone was happy yeah. about that. So. so how much did you buy that building for? I have an interesting uh, kind of agreement for that one. I bought that one. Technically, we bought it at, at 700, the fourplex, 700,000. Okay. However, uh, I didn't put anything down. So, yeah, because you, you were the working partner. The other guys uh, put the money in. Well, they, he had already had equity in the building and it had a lower evaluation. And then what happened was we just redid the evaluation and it came up to where we thought it was. But I essentially got a personal loan BTB from my partner. So, oh, okay. So your situation there is you found somebody who already owned the building and then partnered in with him so that you could start managing it and fixing it up and taking care of it. Exactly. And, and he's yeah. kind of, he's taken my, I have my other working partner and he, the, he's an older gentleman. So we kind of play like a good cop, bad cop game. Me and the younger guy, we're just property managers, right? So, and the older guy, the older general, 
gentleman. We'll, we'll, we'll refer to him as old grumpy because that's what we, we, we call him. We, uh, we tell all the tenants, uh, this is one of the best things I can tell anyone is we tell all the land, all the tenants, we're just a property manager. You know, he's the landlord. Like, what do you think he's going to say if you can't pay your rent on time? Right. So works, yeah. uh, works pretty good. So myself yeah. and the working partner have taken over management of the building as of a year now. And, uh, you know, some things have changed, right? We've put in some new procedures and most of the tenants have, have enjoyed it, enjoyed it. And they're still there. And, you know, we have a uh, probably more lower income uh, families, but you know what? I'm very thankful right now that I do have these because, uh, you know, when you have social assistance, uh, you know, I have my checks coming in still. So yeah. in times like these, I'm very thankful that I do have these tenants. Um, I it's, think that that's one thing that people hear is they think, oh, someone on social assistance, it's uh, not necessarily, you know, I agree. There are certain people that I would never want to rent to, but I have a there. If you know how to weed through them, you can definitely get the some good quality tenants. So. Yeah, it's a it's a very very interesting uh, time right now, right? With the with the virus right now, I mean, I used to think student rentals are like the most bankable thing ever, but now when school's not on, like everything you thought was up is now down, and everything yeah. you thought was was for sure is 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 not, and and things that you thought yeah. for sure are not are now now being looked at as a good thing. Um, almost nobody who who's applying, uh, I mean, at least le- recently, almost no one who's applying for my rental to to re rent it even has a job right now they're just living on on the uh you know the two thousand dollars a month because they can't work or or what have you um it's it's just it's such an odd time and uh with landlord tenant board closed right now it, we all have to be so careful about who we put in oh yeah yeah i'm fortunate on the one that oh, i'm re-renting very... I, on the one i'm re-renting i have the ability to increase rent on it though it's not rent controlled although i mean who knows, right? You know, I, like I said, everything we thought was uh, was one way seems to be another right now. So, um, who knows what will happen in the long run? But pick pick people who have respect. That's that's for sure. Um, I would say. So uh, on that one, I just want to understand the dynamic a bit more. You found the person, you negotiated a price with him. Uh, this is the current value, and then you said this is the kind of work I want to do, and then we're going to go back and refinance. Is that is that how that happened? Well. It- Sure, no. So it's a kind of a funny story. So I was, I'm a rain member, right? And uh, I was at Acre, if you know the Acre event. And um, this gentleman was from the Ottawa chapter, if you will. And uh, I'd known him for two and a half years, probably, but I didn't really talk to him a whole lot. And then um, the day that we were leaving, we were flying out from, from Toronto to Ottawa on the Sunday, and he, uh, he offered us a, a lift. And said, "Hey!" And then, kind of on the way to the airport, he said, "Hey, uh, if you're interested in that, uh, ever interested in buying a multifamily building, let me know. We'll grab a beer." So it kind of what happened after that is we uh, was kind of like, "Well, do we want to go talk to this crazy old guy or or whatnot?" And you know, it uh, ended up going for one beer, which led into a second beer, third beer, and uh, ended up being basically us building our agreement, right? And then uh, the sixplex came up. And uh, we kind of looked at ways to to do that deal, and uh, in turn, we we bought into the rest of the portfolio. Okay, so was it the sixplex first, and then you bought the the fourplex that was no. already his? <laughs> so we actually uh, closed on the fourplex one day before the sixplex. Just before we continue, I just want to reiterate why I think this is so impressive because you know you went to an event, you 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 found a person who had a problem, and you're solving it by being their working partner picking up 10 yeah. units in the process in the course of two days, 10 units in two yeah. days. And is... then they're both actually VTBs. So, okay. So, so the sellers on both, well, the seller on the six uh, held a VTB. Was also a VTB as and well. then, and then on the, uh, the fourplex, he already owned it. So he just didn't he adjust his board. He, he gave me a VTB and I'd done my own comps, right? So I kind of had a pretty good idea what I thought the building was worth. But, you know, appraisals, they don't always come in where you think they're going to come in. Sure. So we had an appraisal a little lower, but I kind of still knew what I was paying for, I think, in the real world. So obviously, if you get a VTB, usually the, the offset is maybe, maybe you pay a bit more of a premium, right? So yeah, I may have paid a little more, but I got favorable financing when I didn't have the money, right? So, so you're on title on that property then. So you you've 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 effectively yep. bought in. So he offered yep. you a VTB on your portion of the equity. What what did he value it at initially? Uh well, he valued it at seven hundred the the building, right? However, the bank valued it at six hundred. 
And then within a year, like we got it reevaluated. It's worth seven twenty five now. Okay, and, and he's still holding have, the uh, difference. You're still no cash yeah, because he's kind holding. Of an interesting way of structuring it, but I basically have a personal loan tool. Okay, you have a personal loan. For yeah, I, I'm paying one a, third. Is it one third? One third? One third? One one fourth. One one quarter. Right. So. Okay, so you but, and your uh, your your partner have each hold a quarter. Yeah, and then okay. we each have a quarter of the sixplex, and you know the. The thought behind this, uh, you know, is we have one silent partner, right, uh, as well, who's, you know, we have like, we basically made our joint venture so that, you know, anything up to, let's say, $2,000 is maintenance, right? I'm running the operations and maintenance. So, you know, any reasonable little thing, just go and fix it. But uh, anything that's a substantial rental, I have to consult everyone, right? So. Okay. And, um, you know, I just find this interesting. You were just mentioning about your fourplex that you have your main partner that owns it. And then you've got your other working partner. And then you mentioned you have another silent partner in there. Uh, what's everybody doing? Why so many partners? The idea too, is that uh, together when you have four incomes, you can qualify for a lot more. Once we reposition these bu- these buildings, I'm looking to get into something bigger, right? Like a 12 or more. When you have four people, if it works, you know, they all have to have the same vision. Um, one of them is a silent partner, right? And then, uh, you know, the other one is kind of more or less, uh, he, he's mentored, right? Like uh, essentially a coach for free, never charged me a cent of coaching. It's it's mindset, right? It's can you do it with, a, with more partners, right? Um, so mm-hmm. I think the, the saying is that uh, it's either you can have a small piece of a grape or a slice of a watermelon, which would you choose, right? So it depends on what you want, right? And I think, uh, I think uh, if you look at a 20-unit building, right, mm-hmm. and you look at the cash flow of a 20-unit building and the pay down over a long time, right, it, uh, it'll definitely pay down, I think, uh, I, th- I think in the long term, long scheme it makes sense right so the four person premise we have is kind of uh it was set with an expectation that one day myself and my 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 closer working partner would probably maybe go on our own and this would be kind of like a foundation building block to build off of what what you're saying makes a lot of sense i mean i know it's a building block and i think that if you can get paid while you're getting educated and have a good mentor in the process i think there's a lot of value to that my experience with partners is that, like you said, you got to check, you got to choose carefully. You got to, you got to be very. Oh, well, we can talk about the flip, but that was the same thing. Yeah, that was three partners, but three more partners, but everyone's trying to call the shots, right? It ended up being two versus two, right? Now it is challenging, and that's uh, that's what happens if you don't vet people uh, and really take the time. Too many cooks in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, too have... many chiefs, not enough Indians, right? So. I've heard that a fair, fair minute, bit, you know, in terms of partnerships and, and, and the challenges that come with it, because at the end of the day, like it sometimes it's just easiest to be able to make, you know, call the shots yourself uh, and make decisions. So I know Mark Loeffler, I had him on the show and he, he says that you won't even partner with somebody if they have any aspirations of being an active uh, investor, because he wants the silent yeah. partner front the money and he'll be the guy that that's doing all the work. Um, call and the shots. Yeah. Call the shots. I mean, he doesn't actually physically do the work, uh, but he, he hires it out. And, and I think that that's yeah. the general model that works. But I mean, of course, in the early days, I think like even Stefan Arnio in his book has a story about how their first project, I think he had a couple of partners on it. And, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's a lot of people start that way. And it's, it's probably a really good learning experience uh, because no one wants to feel like they're in it alone. Uh, when you're when you're early on, and then if you got some financial backing, um, like to your point, you said you know you want to buy bigger buildings, and uh, people with deep pockets are going to help with that. They got the the down payments, um, and if you are doing all the work, hopefully your reward is you know half the cash flow, half the equity for uh, or upside anyway, half the upside. Yeah. Uh, you know for for your efforts. One thing that people can take away from this is that you know not everyone. Uh, it's not all about just money, right? Like. The older gentleman, he he's he's telling me, oh, I've got five to ten years left to to live, right? Uh, you know, he had some he had some sickness, and he's like, you know, I want to enjoy the rest of my life. I want to watch someone grow, right? So that's mm-hmm. his whole reasoning for wanting to partner with myself, right? And and uh, he's taught me so much that you know what, going into this uh, you know stabilization that I did like for the sixplex, like you know, we're talking about pretty rough neighborhood, right? Like, uh, and some rough tenants, some interesting tenants, uh, you know, so uh, definitely having that person there to, to be able to call up at any given moment, and who's willing to pick up the phone and say, do this, do this, 
You know what? I, I went that would if I did that alone, it would have taken me three years. It took me it took us eight months to and well, almost the, it took us over a year now, and we're just starting the the refinancing process for the sixplex. So it's uh, you know it's um, it's how you look at it, right? And for us, it's kind of like uh, myself. Um, I'm kind of more of the uh, probably the more aggressive style investor. As my one closer working partner is uh, very conservative, right? Like an engineer, right? So he uh, very uh, calculated and conservative, right? So reality is somewhere in between the middle and between the three heads, usually the best, uh, the best outcome will come. You know, sometimes if, if we had a problem or something, you know, we'll just kind of react. Like if we had a flood or something, we haven't had that or anything yet, but uh, for dealing with the maintenance and stuff, there's like a mutual respect and it's kind of open book. So, so it's been working so far and it, you know, mm-hmm. it, down the road, uh, Sure, we always have the option to do. Uh, it's it's a flexible joint venture that you know it'll respect everyone what they want to do uh, and other aspirations, right? So okay, I agree with you totally in that. Like taking the opportunity to learn, right? And and that's it, like I, I went into the mortgage business not because it was the most sexy or lucrative, but it, and well, it can be, but. Um, you know, lucrative that is, but, uh, you yeah. know, it, it was about learning. It was about learning. Right. It was, it was about, uh, picking up on things and being a, being a part of the industry, uh, to have somebody, you know, JV that, that knows a lot, you know, you know, just doesn't want to do the work anymore. That's, yeah. uh, that's powerful. And that's a nice situation that you've you put yourself in. And of course you put yourself in that situation cause you went out and you went to the meetup, you know, with rain, we have one similar, yeah. we have rain down here. And then we also have uh, right club and, and I host a meetup. Yeah. I, I'm following a couple people that are, I, I listen to uh, Sarah's podcast too. Right? So yeah. Yeah. So Sarah has her podcast and she set up the, the right club with, uh, with their partners there. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of opportunity to kind of get out there, meet with people and, um, you know, people often ask me for like the easy answer, like what, you know, how do you get started or what do I need to know? And it's like, I, I couldn't tell you all in one conversation. You couldn't learn in one yeah, conversation. Yeah. No, so, no, there's so much to know, right? And like, it's not like an overnight success. Like some people might make it look yeah. like, you know, Instagram can make it look like that. It's, you know, I, I look back and it's like, I, I studied five years ago. I, I remember my first book that I, that I kind of got into was uh, cash flow for life, which was Scott McGilvery's. Hmm. And, uh, that one I found that one, it's a lot about student rentals actually. Right. So, and that one kind of was what kind of started clicking, making me click. And I read it and kind of actually read it like a second time and took a couple notes and then then uh, it was from there it said you got to build your team i went out met a couple people and kind of started figuring it out and then i I got very lucky like i i ended up buying my place uh like my my principal residence is townhome where i'm now and i got lucky because i got in right before the stress test and just it's funny how things kind of work uh you know it's funny because i i look back and i i actually wrote off a car i ended up accepting getting the offer accepted on july 1st on canada day and it was like end of May, I, I totaled my, my brand new Toyota Corolla. It was the best thing I ever did because that $300 a month payment ended up being the difference between me getting the mortgage and not. And, and plus, uh, my insurance went down the year after because I turned 25. So kind of got lucky there. So. so there was a silver lining there. Yeah, that's... Yeah, exactly. So you've had your, your townhouse that you live in for three years then? Yeah. So I, uh, this was my first project that I undertook and I definitely... Uh, Definitely threw myself into the fire, if you will. Okay. Uh, I come from a construction background, so I, I, yeah. I work in HVAC full time uh, in commercial. I, I'm a sheet metal worker by trade. So I, I bought an electric baseboard heated house and I brought the gas service in and I converted it all to all natural gas appliances, everything I could do, right? So I bought it. I got lucky that I kind of bought at the right time and I definitely bought at the right price because I had a good agent. And, um, it's interesting to see how much things can change in three years. So, yeah, how is how is um, your market done up there? Like, what have you seen? Uh, have you seen significant growth in in values just from appreciation? Absolutely. I you know I I, uh, I think that uh, I definitely got in at the right time. Um, a lot of things happened between then and there, but the, you know, obviously, Ottawa is probably one of the hottest in the country right now. I think for for inve- real estate investments. So, 
there's a lot of people I find a lot of people coming from Toronto or just Toronto's gotten so expensive. So I've, I've seen at least when I put out my rental ads, a lot of people moving here from Toronto, a lot of people from all over um, just because it's so expensive in all these other major core cities um, throughout Canada, right? Like Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, right? So, so Ottawa is really just catching up price point wise. Like what's a bungalow cost, yeah. a 1200 square foot bungalow in an average neighborhood in, in Ottawa? What's well, that you cost? can't buy anything under $500,000 anymore. It doesn't seem okay. unless you're buying privately. So, so getting, um, getting to be Hamilton esque type prices then. Uh, yeah. I would yeah. say pretty comparable to Hamilton. So, okay. And, um, you know, for those who aren't familiar with Ottawa, it's uh, capital city of Canada obviously lots of government work uh there do you, yeah. what other kind of industries do you, have you noticed there that kind of really make that a safe and sound type of uh industry or uh, town to invest in well we're actually uh, from what i've been told I, we're like one of the tech i think we're one of the tech hubs of like north america like i've been told that we actually have i don't know if we're the second to like you know you'll have to google this and yeah. verify the info yourself but i'm pretty sure we're like second in north america for tech jobs so Canada that is too. bustling with that stuff. You've got a lot of, a lot of government. We've got Shopify that started here, you know, and you do have, because you have so much development kind of starting, you had a lot of site plan applications everywhere. So lots of construction jobs and the government would be the main influence. I'd say about 40% yeah. of the jobs here are probably government and, you know, they're not going anywhere. Um, I would say like, you know, a big impact the biggest impact on real estate values here is whether it's the liberals or conservatives that end up getting it because that changes the spending habits of the city. So really? Yeah. Please explain. So you, you see less spending uh, if the conservatives are in? Yeah. We just see job cuts, right? So uh, like in the last time the conservatives came in, I believe there was some job cuts on the federal level, which, you know, when you lose jobs, you know, there's some insurgency and not as many people are necessarily buying. Right. Okay. Whereas you, You've got like the liberal government now spending lots of money. A lot of people are feeling confidence, right? So everyone's out here trying to buy. And it's, it was mm-hmm. crazy. The last two weeks or well, last month, I should say, everything is just kind of plateaued. And mm-hmm. uh, But up until now, it's just been bidding war, bidding war, cash yeah. offer. You know, I'm sure you know what that's like. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that is the scene that is Canada uh, right now. All major cities, uh, well, really in Ontario, across the board, anything in the South End, and I, from what I understand, even like Sudbury is seeing that kind of thing. Well, not to that degree, but they're also seeing a pickup yeah. in their values too. Um, we've got so much foreign investment in our real estate, so much immigration up to, you know, prior, we're talking prior uh, virus uh, and lockdown. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's, uh, it's really driven real estate out of the reach of most Canadians. And I've talked about this a lot on the podcast. If you've been following, Absolutely. you probably heard me talk about that, um, mm-hmm. that we're, we're eroding our middle class. And in this event, this, this thing that's happening right now uh, is, is devastating and uh, is going to probably create a, a lot more of a divide between the wealthy and the poor, uh, unless something changes. So we'll have to see, but I mean, on your point about Ottawa, I think that it's, it's generally, you know, when you're government backed, that's traditionally seen as being extremely stable, right? If government is a big portion of your jobs, um, like yeah. you said, it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere, but I also didn't think school is going anywhere either. So, yeah. well, it's, uh, you know, it's another thing too, you got to remember too, is we're, we're right on the border between Quebec, right? So yeah. a lot of people think Ottawa, 1 million people, but you know, you look at Ottawa Gatineau, you're 1.5 million, right? So yeah, there's a lot of people there and, and tourism's a big thing. Um, it's obviously a, a place that people yeah. go to visit. There's, there's so many reasons that make it a pretty diverse town, um, which, pretty, uh, you know, a lot of parks, it's still schools. a very beautiful city, good schools. Yeah. That's yeah. probably one of the main drivers too. Yeah. So th- that's the type of city that I would, I would invest in student rentals in. Like that's like a perfect example of, of a city that I would like to invest in student rentals in. Cause even if student rentals don't become the thing one day or school is less, a less popular route, um, like Gary Vanderchuk gets his way and everybody, you know, learns on YouTube. Um, you know, if school becomes less popular, then there's still a fallback. There's still, you know, other uses in that city for that real estate. Yeah. So we actually have certain neighborhoods that have pretty well been like completely almost converted, uh, into uh like student housing yeah. we've actually had we have uh there used there's this thing called the infill amendment so we have a neighborhood called sandy hill which is right near ottawa u and there used to, used to be i guess a loophole with the uh, building permits and you could go in and you could buy a house and they're all like 
50 by 100 lots, right? So you bought the house and you could just pull a permit and basically add a triplex on the back of the house, right? So one or two of these developers figured this out. They'd go in, they'd buy the house, keep the existing house, add a triplex on the back. Like three extra units. Three extra units. And then they would add in like as many bedrooms as physically possible. And they would like charge like, you know, $700 a room. So these guys figured this out, this loophole. And then one of the, one of them, I know they even like sold them to investors and then would manage them. And, you know, they build them cheap so that they would break and they would fix them. And they like, you know, obviously it exploded. They took off and basically changed the whole landscape of neighborhood. So if you drive through Sandy Hill, you would see all these buildings that this is exactly what happened. All student housing and uh, they even have, when they have the Panda game, the whole street's closed off. There's garbage everywhere. It's pretty crazy. It's Yeah. It's it's crazy how, how one person or one small group of people can do that. And I've seen the similar in London, like almost exactly what you just described. I saw a guy do that. He learned that you could rip down houses and build brand new uh, purpose-built duplexes, 10 bedrooms in total. He was, you know, buying the houses for 180, uh, building, building for one or 250. And then he was... Um, you know, selling them for 600. And so he, he was making a, a good buck on them. And uh, he did that for as long as the bylaw would allow, the bylaw changed. And then he figured out the next thing to do. And he systematically transformed neighborhoods. And I just followed him from the beginning and eventually learned how to do what he did. And that was really my start, uh, you know, into student rentals was watching him and watching what he was doing, creating value um, and exploiting something in the system that was out of people's radar that wasn't really on the general public's radar and, and just uh, tackling it. And I, yeah. I can't say enough about that strategy. If you can find something, a little loophole that people don't know about and you could exploit it, uh, you can generate massive wealth uh, by doing that. So it sounds like that's what this guy did. Yeah. There's like one or two companies that did it. And uh, I mean, I don't think the, uh, I don't think the city or a couple of counselors were too pleased with that. Uh, but uh if it's not them, it's the next person, right? So I mean, oh yeah, so yeah, you gotta. This is can't please is, everyone. <laughs> this is how zoning changes happen, right? Like I've told the story yeah, here. So. Like things I've done have, have actually ended up with with zoning changes being made. So um, you might be the catalyst, but as long as the opportunity is there, take it. But also know if you're if you're you know trying to do or exploit a certain loophole, and all your eggs are in that basket. If they change the law, yeah. what happens to you? You got You got to be prepared and. You know, some of that might come yeah. down to uh, getting your permits in before you uh, you firm up. Like if you're really concerned, or you know, if, if the property only works one way and you don't have a plan B and C, then that's pretty dangerous. Um, so you obviously gotta um, gotta watch yeah, yourself. Yeah, you gotta there. gotta hedge your bets for sure. I definitely yeah. agree with that. So, um, yeah. so Mac, I did want to transition a little bit. Um, you know, so we got to have a good feel. You you've really focused on the education, partner multiple ways. Uh, do you mind sharing what kind of cash flow you can get on those properties up there? Like what, what does that fourplex cash flow? What does the six? So cash that flow? would part of it, That would be probably part of the, uh, the whole far, four partner thing, right? If you're going into, you know, a deal like that, um, whether it be the four, let's call it the four and the six, right? Uh, when we started, right, we had two VTBs were relatively leveraged, right? So, if you had to have that whole burden, you know, we we're probably negative. I think between the two buildings when we first started, we were negative cash flow, probably twelve hundred bucks over the two two okay. buildings, right? So, you know, we'll try and when we kind of get in, we we'll try and uh, you know take our time and like just outlast, right? If you will, like uh, how do I say this? Probably I would uh, not spend as much right away, right? And yeah. when you get the opportunity, you can spend it and rehab, right? And then basically. You know the the big game changer is when you're dropping the interest rates. So because we're doing we're going from one mortgage, we had a because we had a VTB. So we better take back mortgage. mortgage. Okay, so so you had two yeah, mortgages. And then we had our. Do you have cash flow months. now? Do you have cash flow now on those buildings? Uh, we'd be between yeah. Now we technically we'd be up uh, probably six hundred on the one building uh, because we just redid that mortgage, and then we're doing the other mortgage. Um, and that's going to bring it up 1700. So, so you're going to have, so you'll have over $2,000 in cash flow between the two. Yeah. And this is split between the four partners. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so you're getting paid to basically educate yourself, learn all the dynamics yeah. of, of, uh, joint ventures where do, when you look now, so, and I'm going to ask you how, how the whole virus thing has affected things for you. But when you look down and you look to the future, how do you want to proceed? Where do you see yourself in 10 years as a real estate investor? You know what? I, I definitely believe part of uh, 
Matt Pichet's philosophy, right? Uh, to invest right in one neighborhood or, you know, invest in one city that you know. And I, I think that a lot of people are, are fearful of Vanier. And I think there's a good opportunity here. I'll tell you why. It's because there, right now we have, in Ottawa, we have, uh, it's probably the biggest, most opposed development that's ever happened in the city of Ottawa is they're proposing putting a shelter on Montreal Road, which obviously is not good. And the, the funny thing is, if you read the bylaws, it says no, no shelters on traditional Main Street. But the city of Ottawa has basically given it a kind of a go-ahead. So out of all developments that have ever been submitted through Siteland, uh, this, is, this one's gotten the most opposition out of everything. Anyway, you can, go SOS, you can Google SOS Vanier and read about it if you want. But um, with this, it's kind of a, it's a big, it's kind of holding a lot of people back from this neighborhood, I think. And my, my reason for not being too, too worried is I'm not buying right near this, this shelter. And I think that people, like, I think that Scott McGovery says it the best is love the numbers, not the house, right? I try not to get too emotionally attached when I'm running my numbers, right? Or when I'm putting in an offer, I try and really take a step back and breathe and see what's going to work for me, right? So um, I think the shelter would be more of an emotional driver. If you actually did the research, which I did, um, I did a bit of research and it says that, you know, I don't think it is so dependent on what it is being a shelter. I think the fact that it's a brand new building compared to the old crummy hotel that's there, you know, I think you're going to see some value gain just from, from that. And, you know, to give you an idea, Montreal Road right now, they're doing a whole revitalization project where they're basically ripping up uh, the whole street, redoing all the infrastructure. So there's like $50 million project going on Montreal Road to basically increase services so they can put up condos and stuff right here. Yeah. So, so it'll be offset. See, yeah, I think when you see the infrastructure going in, that's a good sign, right? When the shovel hits the ground, that's where you should be buying. So um, I see myself hopefully buying a couple more buildings in Vanier. Um, you know, hopefully uh, I find that the the good tenants are the people that are coming from Toronto that don't know the history of Vanier, right? So those oh, yeah. are the people I'd love to target is the people that are coming here for those contract jobs with the government that uh, they come to the neighborhood and like, oh, it's still cheaper than everywhere else in Ottawa and I'm super close to downtown. Like I'm right east of, I'm an eight minute uh, Uber ride or $8 and a five minute Uber ride to the Byward Market, which is right downtown or where all the the nightlife is in Ottawa, right? Yeah. So it's about as close as it gets without being, it's still at a, I'd still say a deal. So, yeah. So the, I, I see myself still here. Uh, I'll, I'll be in Ottawa uh, as an investor. I, I'd like to get more to uh, the full time uh, investor. Okay. I'd like to become more of an active, do a couple more active deals where I can be actively uh, investing and be a working partner and get paid to be a working partner. Um, and then, you know, maybe I have some money partners, right? So we're buying a bu bigger yeah. building, doing some stabilization. Like I am a contractor as well. So I a do general contractor as well. Yeah. I'm a general, okay. well, I, so I work full time. I'm a general contractor. I've done my carry on courses. So I do have some, some education behind me. I spent some money on self education, right? So I haven't registered to be a carry on home builder, but I got to open a corporation, you know, and have an interview. I'm not too concerned, but I've done all the courses, right? So, okay. So you're, you're right in. I mean, that's obviously what, what makes you really, really uh, prime for, for being a working partner is you understand the trades, you understand renovations. You probably are able to do a lot of the work yourself. Um, yeah. I'm, uh, funny, we're at home, we're at home right now and I'm, uh, I'm right in the middle of it. Right. So, uh, yeah. I'm, uh, uh, if I'm going to be quarantined, I'm going to take advantage of the time. So, yeah. So, you, are are you still working right now, or is all your work pretty much dry? I out? am. I am still working right now. Uh, Multi-unit construction is not is an essential service. So, I'm yeah. still. We we've we've gone down to Monday to Thursday, which I'm really not. Uh, I don't mind it because I mean I'm here the other three days, so got an extra day uh, a week to work but you know the problem i foresee if they're going to stop construction is eight months from now all these big jobs that aren't out of the ground it's going to really cause some friction so i hope they get the permits back open <laughs> yeah that's uh, it's not a good thing it's not a good thing well none of this is um this shutdown is uh is a very very tragic economic uh event and i'm really hoping that we we uh we see a, a turn to this very soon 
because under our current system, it just wasn't built to withstand this, the economic system. So that's a separate rant. We won't, uh, oh, yeah. we won't we get go on into for hours. But, yeah. Uh, I definitely agree that I, I think there's a, we have, if you were to have a Canada's economy in a bucket, I think the pin drop in the bucket would be COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And I don't think this is good for us. So if, yeah. if it's, everything's going to tank, it means in theory, you know, prices should go down, but I still think Ottawa's rental market where with where it is, it's so it's still, I don't think we, we have an affordable housing crisis in Ontario. Oh yeah. I don't think, I don't think if you've got these long-term investments, if you got buildings, uh, you know, I still think long-term people will always need a place uh, yes. to live. Right. And if well, you're, yeah. if you're going to buy for long-term, it, you're not, not going to lose. You just got to weather the storm. So well said. And I say that all the time. It's, it's the weather in the storm. How long is that storm? We don't know. So, I mean, I always look at if I'm going to buy something now, it's got to be uncomfortable hand, uh, keeping it for 20, 20 years plus. Um, that's that, that to me is a yeah. must because we just don't know, um, how this will play out. We really, we really couldn't possibly know. Um, I think it, it has the makings of something that could be worse than uh, the uh, economic impact of the Great Depression. But we also have far more advanced economic policy that will combat that. So, um, you know, w- time will tell, you of and course. Me both, right? Yeah. So, well, time I will mean, tell. Uh, and there's so many decisions to be made, right? Political decisions about when we, we uh, restart the economy. Um, yeah. But uh, we, yeah, we'll, we'll see how this all plays out. So, Mac, if you had one thing that you've learned um, that you would want to share, uh, what's like the most important single lesson you would want to share with somebody who's in the earlier stages, maybe they've done a JV or maybe they're thinking about doing one. What would you tell them? You know what? My, my best uh, piece of advice would be to anyone starting out would be to learn how to do your taxes, learn how RSPs work because that's how I got my down payment. You know, I, uh, I got, because I was an apprentice for five years you, we have like the way the pay system works for an apprentice is every year you go up an extra 10%, 10%, 10%. So, you know, um, I took that extra 10% and I started over the year just dumping an extra couple hundred bucks in my RSPs, right? And in a three or four year time, plan, uh, time frame, I took that money and it ended up being my down payment, right? You have the first time home buyers plan, right? So I took that money. I even took a, an Ontario Youth Apprenticeship Program, which is an interest-free loan while you're an apprentice, and I uh, I put that into my RSP, and then I essentially like rolled it all in. And uh, when I did my first mortgage, I did a purchase plus, did all the work myself, and paid it off. So the RSPs, you know, I turned ten grand into twenty-three. Like I probably put ten thousand, maybe twelve thousand of my own money because I played stocks for three five years. You know, I turned it into 23, which was a, which was a down payment, right? So I would tell anyone buy 5% down. It's better than not buying, than waiting for 20. But I think, yeah, if you can learn how to use your RSPs, that's a tool that if you're, if you haven't bought a house yet, you can make 18 to 20% to do nothing, right? So if you go to the bank manager and do your taxes before the 60th day of the calendar year. Okay. So you're saying you make 18 to 20%. Is that because you're not, you're avoiding taxes? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You're deferring it, right? Yeah. So, so you're deferring your taxes. You're going to use that money that that you've uh, that you've put into your RSP uh, for down payment. And I've seen a lot of that. You know, coming from the mortgage business, I've seen a lot of people do do that, and it's a great opportunity. Um, I think just getting back to your point, like it's better to to buy at five percent than twenty. Um, generally speaking, I'd say uh, yes, that's true. The only thing, caveat I would say is make sure you got the cash flow because you know, that 5% equity might go away depending on what the market does. Like we've been so blessed yeah. in so many ways to get our, our values of real estate shooting up, you know, like crazy, making us all look, you know, oh, yeah. look like geniuses. Absolutely. It's been making us look like geniuses, but uh, this will be the true test potentially uh, if we do see a correction um, to, to see who can weather the storm. And, and uh, the better you prepare yourself, the better you, you know, you put yourself in the position to weather that storm, obviously the more likely you are to come out on the other end of it, still a happy real estate investor ready to do more. Uh, but Absolutely. a lot of people are going to take advantage of this, right, Mac? Like, I mean, if you see prices come down, you know, it might even entice you to want to do a couple more deals because now you got a oh, better yeah. opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm taking the opportunity. I'm redoing both my mortgages so I can have, uh, you know, have the cash sitting in the pockets, right? So we can, uh, I even, you know, I, my RSPs, I have that still and I, I'm, I'm playing with the stocks. 
I'm buying gold and silver companies, right? I think that's recession, you know, in times of recession, that's a good thing to be looking at. Uh, and then, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, maybe once I get them all done, uh, I'll be able to hopefully go out and buy another building for sure. Yeah. And the opportunity might just come around, right? We get the, get that correction if we do and, uh, and then see some, some prices drop and, or maybe you just make a couple of offers that are lower knowing that sellers are just kind of looking to get out and, um, who knows, but as long as we keep our eyes open as investors, we've got an opportunity. I think the, I think the biggest opportunity is you don't have the same bidding war. You got a lot of people mm -hmm. scared, right? So if you know what you're doing, you know, your numbers, you know what you're, you know, you know, the game, I mean, yeah. You gotta you gotta play your cards, right? So if you don't have you know ten other players at the table, it's it's a lot more room for negotiating. So yeah, like that's the biggest thing I've heard here is that you know now you get you get the opportunity to tie a place up conditionally. Like for the longest time, it was just bidding wars of firm offers, and now you can you can write a conditional offer yeah. and go see it and inspect it and then negotiate. Uh, that's that's an entirely different ball game. So. Uh, yeah, there's always a silver lining and I'm sure that there's plenty that we can make here. Um, so just before we go back, if, uh, you know, if, when you're not doing real estate, you're not uh, working in HVAC and general contracting, what are you doing for fun? I like to ski in the winter. Uh, I definitely like to ski, go up to the cottage, I like to travel. I, uh, been over to Asia. I would definitely go back. Uh, I would like to do, I had plans to hopefully go traveling some more, you know, at the end of the year this year who who knows i haven't booked a flight yet but maybe the prices on those flights will go down too but uh, we'll, yeah. we'll wait and see kind of take it week by week and uh but uh i would like to uh i'd like to go and travel i want to check out costa rica that's one the next one on my my list that's a beautiful place i've been there yeah well worthwhile so yeah we'll uh we'll wait until the uh until the uh, travel restrictions are lifted and the airlines are flying again but uh yeah, exactly looking forward to that anyways mac i really appreciate it where should people uh, reach you if they want to connect the easiest thing would be probably uh either facebook just mac cunningham or uh, mac at intuitiveinvestment.ca is my email a little bit of a mouthful but uh that's probably the easiest okay so uh mac cunningham on facebook or or uh, Mac at intuitive intuitive investment .ca. So okay. I, we are on Instagram. I am on Instagram too, but my page is definitely uh, lacking a bit. I, I need to uh, delegate that task. <laughs> mm, fair enough. Yeah, I, I know. I have a few tasks like that myself. Okay, Mac, I really appreciate the time and uh, we'll look forward to uh, seeing what you do next. All right, that wraps it up for the episode with Mac Cunningham. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I wanted to uh, really just start off this talk and it's going to be a little bit more casual, a little bit more relaxed uh, than my normal uh, monologues, which are, are very to the point and right into the episode. Uh, so first off, you'll, you'll recall that Mac said in that episode that he was investing in gold and silver stocks and I thought that was very well timed for this talk because I'm going to get into talking about currency. So let's just kind of dissect what's going on at the moment. As of right now, we're in we're into the start of May. The country shut down back in uh, March, mid-March. And uh, at the time, I was super concerned about that because I know that our economy has never had more debt. We're looking at uh, people on an individual basis. We're looking at our government. And the challenge with debt is you got to keep moving in order to be able to service it. So as soon as the government said, we're going to stop everybody from working, here I am in my head thinking, how are all these business owners with mortgages going to pay their mortgage payments? And yes, the government has done some stuff, but certainly has not taken care of the burden completely. Uh, it's really just been a band-aid on, on a gunshot wound for a lot of people. So let's get into what we are seeing right now in the market. We've seen our government announce a $180 billion deficit for this year alone, uh, when if you look at our interest-bearing debt on our country's balance sheet federally was just over a trillion dollars. And of course, they have some assets. So people say our debt's around $750 billion. Well, we're talking about adding $180 billion in deficit just in one year. Um, that estimate has now been grossed up to $250 billion. And then, of course, you know, if they're saying $250, that really probably means $350. Maybe even we go up to $500 billion. Uh, so we're talking about adding on a third of our existing national debt, which is all interest bearing into the mix. So if you think about that, that means the interest that we pay right now which was approximately $20 billion a year spread across our, our citizens here in Canada at the federal federal level, uh, we're going to be adding to that, which presents a burden because we want our economy to grow, 
But it's if you can picture a speedboat with an anchor out the back, when you've got your, you know, your gas on full, but you've got an anchor out the back, you really just can't go that fast. And that's what that's what taxation does to an economy. It kind of slows it down. So this is a good time to get into the psychology of what's going to happen on the other side of this. Uh, so if you think about the fact that right now we've got a whole bunch of businesses that are going out of business. Um, basically, they've been given some government incentive, but it's not enough. There's already been tons of restaurants that have been open for, you know, 20, 30 years that says, hey, we're, we're done. We're not coming back. So now all those people are laying off employees. Um, then we've also got businesses that are going to default on their leases and their loans. Now, whether they're defaulting on their leases or defaulting on their loans, the landlord or the bank is going to pay. In either way, the bank is going to pay because if it's the landlord that can't pay, now the landlord's going to default on their loans. So what happens when, when we have all this unemployment and we have all these loans defaulting is that everybody tightens up their spending. Now, you might remember from a previous episode that I talked about what is GDP, gross domestic product. That's how we measure our economy. That's how we measure economic growth. In times of growth, we're seeing our GDP go up every year. And what gross domestic product is, is it's just the sum total of all transactions in our economy. So every bag of potato chips, every beer, every computer, every car, every piece of real estate sold in our economy in that year equates to our GDP for that year. So what we like to see is we like to see a growing economy. Under our current economic model, that's what we like to see. If we're not seeing a growing, if we don't see that number going up every year, then we say we're in a recession. So if we have two consistent quarters where that number isn't going up, that's a recession. So what we're in right now is a recession. There's no two ways about it. There's absolutely no way that we're not. That's just a reality. And that's obviously inflicted by our government because you know they're responding to this virus threat. Um, so knowing that, we're going to come out of this, but we're not just going to resume. So now all these businesses that have gone bankrupt and have closed their doors, have laid off their employees and defaulted on their mortgages, defaulted on their leases, we have that that condensing effect. So now every single person who just lost a whole bunch of money, they're not spending. Every single person's like, whoa, I just lost my job or I just lost my business. How am I going to retire? What am I going to do? They just stop spending. So everybody contracts. And, and if you think back to what GDP is, it's the sum total of all transactions. So if no one's spending, GDP is falling like a rock. Well, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is we have our tax base. Our government taxes us based on our GDP. They tax us based on our income, which is ultimately the sum total up to our GDP. Well, now they're taxing less and less, which means our government's going to go even more and more in debt. And when that happens... Now they're going to have to tax us even more in the future to make up for these deficits that we're going to have. So it's just a spiraling problem. And what our, our government will typically try and do is they'll they'll just print more money. And I, I say that as a figure of speech. They're not really necessarily just printing it, but basically they'll take out more government debt. And to counteract this spiraling effect of no one having work, no one doing anything, they'll start throwing money at People. So whether it be through municipal projects like infrastructure, building new roads, building new bridges, things that create jobs, and they'll try and stimulate the economy. They'll keep our interest rates really low. They'll do a whole bunch of things that encourage spending. And when that, when that doesn't work, they'll probably give us you know, what we call helicopter money, where they basically just drop money on us for no reason. And uh, they can call it a number of different things. They might call it a benefit, a, you know, a, a special uh, one-time gift, whatever it is, or maybe they'll call it universal basic income, which I really hope doesn't happen, but it is possible. Okay, so what's the problem with all these incentives? Well, this triggers something called inflation. And I've talked about this before too. And inflation is simply your dollars buying power going down. In other words, it's it's the price of everything else going up. And it's because there's the perceived value of our dollar is worth less. And why would our dollar be worth less? Well, if you think about economics, I'm sure you've heard the expression, it's all about supply and demand. Well, if we've got more dollars, but no more goods, then we're naturally going to see higher prices. And this is what's happening right now. Right now, we have a society with disrupted supply chains. We're seeing it in all kinds of areas. I'm sure you've gone to a grocery store and you've seen empty shelves. You've seen not enough toilet paper, what have you. I mean, obviously, that's a more of a demand problem, but um, we are seeing some disruptions already. And as time progresses, the more and more people are not working, this problem gets worse. Um, but regardless, we're having more and more dollars of demand without more and more supply. And what's going to happen, because all these extra dollars are just being thrown into our economy, we're going to naturally see prices rise. How much they'll rise? 
that's the part that's very difficult to figure out. So what do I think is going to happen in the short term here? I think we're going to see that contraction. I think that we're going to see, you know, depending on how long this goes on, we might see some some baby boomers lose their pensions, some retirees losing uh, what they had thought that they were going to be able to retire on. Um, and that's really going to compound that that lack of spending, that that saving mentality. And that saving mentality is not good for economic growth, even though that you'd think saving is good, but it doesn't help our economic growth. If that happens... Ultimately, they're just going to keep throwing more and more money, and then we hit that tipping point. And that tipping point is where we might actually see what's called hyperinflation, which is just inflation at a very high level. And that's when, you know, you might go to the, you've heard those old stories back after World War One in Germany, where people would have to take a wheelbarrow full of money to go buy a loaf of bread. You know, people are getting uh, an employment raise in wage on a daily basis because the dollar is just losing value so much. That's absolute chaos to me. In, in my mind, that's probably the worst possible outcome we could see of all of this. And I don't say this to be doom and gloom. I just want to convey how I see this this working out so that we can start putting our heads together and hopefully be part of the positive change. But very worst, we can just take advantage of the opportunity and prepare ourselves for it. So knowing that we might hit that hyperinflation, the money that's circulating is going to most likely, and this is totally just my opinion, inflate food first. All of our essential goods, the things we always buy that we're all demanding equally, now we just have more dollars. So naturally, those those are going to go up. We're going to see prices of, of you know, food and, and, you know, maybe even gasoline, although oil prices are way down, but just other essential goods that we need to get probably go up in the short term, maybe in the next six to 12 months. No one knows the exact timing of this, and it really does depend on what our government does. So these are just my thoughts. Uh, but what does that do to assets? Well, you got to bring it back to human psychology. If I've just lost everything, if I've just, you know, you know, had to, to have my house, uh, foreclosed on because I couldn't pay, uh, pay the mortgage or what have you, I'm not going to be buying houses. Or if I just lost my, my job and I'm scraping together to, to pay my mortgage, uh, I'm not really probably thinking about upgrading to a new house, probably not going to be making any moves in the real estate market. So with less buyers, uh, looking to buy, that puts us in a position where we're probably going to see more of a um, buyer's market. They call it a buyer's market because the buyer is calling the shots. The buyer kind of gets their pick. So if it's more of a buyer's market, that means we're probably going to see, again, bringing it back to supply and demand, there's the same supply of real estate potentially trying to sell, uh, but there's less buyers interested in, in changing transactions and buying houses. Might be something that we see, uh, or we might not see it changed at all. Real estate could stay the same. I think that we're probably going to see real estate contract at least a bit, and then it's probably going to sit. And what I think is that in the long run, once we see enough economic easing, once the government throws enough money at us that we basically just, you know, can't resist or like, holy crap, we just got $100,000 or whatever, uh, whatever number it takes for that person that was so scared to spend, whatever number it takes before they stop saving and they say, okay, now I finally got enough. Now I'm finally going to spend. Uh, and they go out and try and buy a house and they go out and they, 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 you know, buy a boat or whatever else. That's when we start seeing that tidal wave of money hitting the economy. And, uh, that's where we'll probably see some pretty significant inflation. I don't know how much, uh, typically here in Canada, we've targeted a 2% uh, inflation rate. And they track that through the consumer price index. So if you've ever heard of that, uh, they're kind of tracking and they say we're right around 2% and it fluctuates a little bit uh, on a yearly basis. I don't totally agree with the number they come up with. And I, I'm sure you'll agree that the price of the goods you use on a daily basis have been going up more than 2% a year uh, over the last 10, 12 years. But that is the data that they're reporting. And, uh, you know, I, I just think here in Ontario, we're not really uh, representative of, of that number as much as other areas are. At the end of the day, we don't really know what's going to happen. When I look at real estate prices, I say, well, you know, what? they're extremely out of reach for most people anyway. So when they, they find themselves in a pretty tough situation and they're, you know, maybe lost their job, um, they're probably just going to be thinking, yeah, save money. And I don't want to go buy a, a overpriced real estate. They might move to cheaper areas. So we might naturally see a contraction in value in the in the higher priced areas and then we might even see values pushed up in the lower priced areas it's it's very tough to say anything for sure we can only really speculate which is why you know economists are, are really just guessing just like all of us but my hope with all this is just to kind of give you an indication of some of the fundamentals that go into it uh, now the next part of the conversation i wanted to get into is about currency you may have heard the expression the term fractional reserve lending 
And basically what this is, is this is what the banks in Canada, the banks in, in America do, and pretty well any country with a central banking system, is say the bank has $100. The bank is required to keep only 10% of that on deposit so say some, you know, customer A came in, deposited $100. The bank can now take that $100 and they leave $10 in the account and they can lend out $90. And then sure enough, that $90 goes out and it circulates in the economy. Somebody buys, you know, a, a couple of, uh, you know, grocery items. That money now makes its way back. The grocer comes back and deposits the money into the bank and they have uh, that $90 back there. So now the bank can lend out 90% of that. So they're going to lend out $81 and then that money's going to cycle around and go out and out. So this is called the theory of money creation. And basically the idea is that a $100 deposit is essentially creating nearly $1,000 in money. It's creating money out of debt. It's fictitious. The money doesn't really exist in the bank, but because of this fractional reserve lending, they can create money. And it's money out of nothing. Like, if you really think about it, what is money? Money is money is supposed to be a store of value. So I should call this currency because currency does not necessarily need to be a store of value. Uh, our dollar used to be backed by gold meaning that you could actually exchange a dollar for a certain amount of gold. In the States, they had a, a policy so you could exchange the dollar bill for, uh, you could exchange $35 for an ounce of gold. Uh, I don't remember the exact date on that, but that was the conversion at one point. So basically, once we went off the gold standard, we're no longer there. Our money became worth less, really. The only reason we believe it's worth anything is because the government tells us to do it. So now back to our, our fractional reserve lending, it's not real money. It doesn't really exist. It's a, it's a fictitious made up number on a computer screen that's sent out into our economy. But because of that effect, if you think about the cycle, the cycle needed to, to create that money. So one person spends, the money circulates, comes back to the bank. It goes out again. The money circulates, comes back to the bank. And we've, we've created a thousand dollars out of a hundred dollars. The second the economy stops growing and people contract, now everyone starts defaulting on their loans. So it comes crumbling down. Um, that, that is the real challenge with fractional reserve lending is as soon as we stop growing, as soon as we go into a recession, the whole system breaks. And this is why our, our central banks, our Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve in the US try so hard to prevent an economic crash. This is what they did back in 2008 when they threw all that money at the uh, at the um, mortgage crisis and they bailed out banks and they bought up asset-backed securities. Uh, they basically were just buying their way out by printing money, buying their way out of the crisis because they need the system to continue to grow, whether that's through inflation or whether it's through actual economic growth, meaning more people are adding value. Um, they want it to grow and we need it to grow. As long as we're operating on this system, we need it to grow. So um, knowing that and knowing that that's where economic policy is sort of coming from and, and why central banks will always try and stimulate the lower interest rates. They'll try and encourage you to loan, uh, borrow money. They might even actually back your loan. They, you know, So I see that coming in Canada. I highly, highly suspect that they're going to uh, basically start guaranteeing loans for the banks so that the banks will still give loans to Canadians, even if they, they probably shouldn't have them or under normal policies wouldn't have them all in the interest of stimulating our economic growth another point i wanted to come up with here is that you can't create money you can only create currency as we said before and this is why this whole basic income concept doesn't work because if you think about an economy the only way we can really uh we can really create value in an economy is is if people are actually providing goods and services things that are actually valuable uh there is no way to to create money you can create currency but currency is worthless. Currency is just a number on a piece of paper. And, and as soon as we have more of those pieces of paper, we value each one of them less. Therefore, each one of them will buy much less in the grocery store or in the car dealership or wherever it is you're trying to spend that money. So we really do need to understand that our system only works if people are creating value for each other. That's the only thing that can protect the value of our currency. This whole thing where the government sends you a check uh, for money that you didn't work for and there's so many people sitting at home and I feel for you. I know we're all in the same position that we're, we're being restricted in what we can do. I'm fortunate enough that I'm still able to work, but our system only works if people are continuing to create value for each other. Otherwise, every single day that passes, we are destroying our currency. And the biggest concern I have out of all of this, now that you know the, the logic behind the thinking, uh, the biggest concern I have is 
what happens when people no longer respect our currency? If it gets to that point where, where, you know, we need to give employees a raise every single week because our dollar is so unstable. You know, do people still buy houses? Are banks still interested in giving loans? What kind of interest rates are they going to charge? So typically what a central bank will do to try and combat inflation is they'll raise interest rates and they'll slow the economy. They'll slow the inflation. Uh, so we saw this back in the 1980s. We saw interest rates go up to 20%. People, my mom got a, a mortgage renewal offer at 20% and she sold her house instead. At that point, when we're trying to buy food, when we're trying to import the goods, I mean, we're here in Canada, it's cold most of the year. So we, we can't really uh, grow all the food that we need here. We have to import. Um, what happens when we can't import food? Because people don't trust the value of our dollar. You know, they say, hey, this shipment would be $20,000. But by the time it gets there, we probably need to charge you 40. So you know what? You know, we're not going to do that. That's going to create problems for us. If we allow it to happen, that creates problems for us. And this is why I've been so adamant that we need to get back to work because what would happen if we, if we had empty grocery stores, if we actually had famine here in, in Canada? And, and again, not trying to be doom and gloom, guys. I just want, I, I just think it's really important that we understand the, the potentials here. And, you know, they really should teach economics at a very basic level uh, in schools. And that's why I just figured, you know what, I'm going to do a, a basic, very off the cuff, uh, unscripted discussion of where some of my concerns are and why I think it's so important that we get back to work. Um, I do think we're over leveraged as Canadians. I think that that the system is set up to cause us to use a lot of debt. Uh, it's never been easier to get credit cards, to get mortgages, things like that. Um, Yes, these are tools. Yes, they've been incredibly uh, useful for us. But the risk that comes with that is exactly what's happening now. If there's a disruption in the economy, now we have to, you know, now we have to buckle down and, and hopefully we can weather the storm. So did I see this coming? Absolutely not. Do I want to see things uh, rebound? Absolutely, I do. Um, so my guest that I just had on the show, Mac, uh, he was talking about buying gold and silver. So why do people do that? So we talked about the dollar being backed by gold originally. There was no inflation when the dollar was backed by gold because gold held its value. The, the, the reason people backed the dollar with gold is because gold is, is useful. It can be used for, for jewelry. It can be used in electronics. Um, it's, it's scarce. It only has a certain amount of quantity on this planet. Uh, and it's, it's pretty much universally respected in all countries. That's something really, really special, really, really useful. Um, and which is why so many countries have, have relied on gold. And if you look back at even in the U.S. Constitution, it says all their transactions must happen in either gold or silver and uh you know even if it's paper it still needs to be backed by gold or silver and that they knew they knew way back at uh, at the formation of the country uh what what could happen if they allowed central banking in um, i hope that you found some value out of all this i don't often do episodes like this it's been uh the last time i did a monologue was i think episode one <laughs> So uh, I apologize out of practice, apparently. I love natural discussions, which is why dialogues are, are kind of my preference. But um, again, let me know what you think. Let me know if you have thoughts or other things you'd like me to talk about. Or if you disagree with something I've said or you feel there's another way that we can look at it, I'm uh, totally open to that. Uh, really, this is just about me throwing out some ideas, uh, seeing seeing what you think, and then, of course, seeing if that's useful to you. Um, I do also want to stress that uh, now that I mentioned episode one, uh, it'd be a great idea if you're new and if you're trying to learn more about real estate investing, you want to hone your skills, go back to the first 10 episodes, first 15 episodes. Um, I really dug into the numbers, even on YouTube. I actually posted the numbers so you could see them on the screen. This uh, podcast has had a chronology. Um, we've constantly moved forward. And um, I, I focus less on the basic numbers now than I used to just because uh, it's the natural evolution of things. And I like to focus energy and attention on, uh, on new concepts more and more. So I would highly recommend if you're really just trying to get down the numbers, uh, go right back to the beginning. And of course, like I said, there's a chronology. Enjoy it. Use it. Uh, that's what it's there for. And most importantly, if you wouldn't mind sharing it with a friend or family member so that it can help them as well, I would certainly appreciate it. Uh, again, smash that like button. If you don't mind, uh, write me a review if, uh, if you haven't already. And uh, thank you so much. I will see you on the next episode.